0: 30 sayings of wisdom. And this phrase comes from verse 20. Look what it says in verse 20. Now, I'm reading the New American Standard Bible, NASB. How many of you have an NASB Bible? Raise your hand if you have an NASB. Okay. Okay, it says there in verse 20, Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge? That's the NASB translation, but other translations translate it a Different way. How many of your translations say something about 30 sayings of wisdom? Raise your hand. Okay. What translation? Somebody got their hand raised. What translation? ESV? ESV, what else? Who else? HCSB, Home Christian, what else? NIV has 30 sayings? Okay. A lot of translations go with the phrase, 30 sayings of wisdom. So why does NASB say, I've written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge, but other translations say, 30 sayings of wisdom? Well, it comes down to a single word in the Hebrew and differences about how that word is translated. NASB uses the phrase excellent things uh, that, that I've just read to you. Um, another translation, uh, the Latin Vulgate uses the word triply because it takes the, the meaning there and, and takes it as a, having a numeric uh, meaning. Uh, other versions, RSV, HCSB, uh, NIV, ESV use the, the phrase 30 sayings. Uh, you say, wait, which one is it? It could go either way. You look at the way it's interpreted or translated. And I believe the last is the most convincing, the, the 30 sayings of wisdom. Because this next section, you can divide it into 30 sayings, so it matches up. There are 30 blocks of, of wise sayings. And most scholars believe that these 30 sayings are meant to be... Uh, they're meant to provide an alternative to another collection of wisdom literature that was Egyptian. And this day and time there was an Egyptian wisdom literature, a wisdom of I'm going to say this name, so bear with me, Amenemope. Amenemope. Amena, let's see. Amenemope, Amenemope, Amenemope. Say that five times fast. And this Egyptian name Amenemope had written this document that had 30 sayings of Egyptian wisdom. And so what scholars think is happening here is Solomon is saying, you know what? These ungodly Egyptians that worship pagan false gods, they have their words of wisdom. We're the people of God. we got some words of wisdom too. we got some godly things, some godly wisdom to share. And so they collected 30 sayings that were, that were popular during this time among the Hebrew people and put them together as an alternative to the Egyptian 30 sayings. that makes sense? So I believe the, the 30 sayings is an accurate translation uh, in in your Bibles that read like that. And so if you just walk through this, there are 30 different sayings that extend from chapter 22, verse 17, down through chapter 24, verse 22. That's this section. So we're going to study, I don't know if we'll get through tonight, we're going to go through 30 sayings and just kind of look at them and try to understand them. And they're really good. Hopefully what you'll do is you'll take this sheet tonight and you'll take it home with you and you'll review these 30 things. As a matter of fact, 30 Sayings of wisdom line up well with thirty days in a month, and so maybe starting in September, you want to take these uh, these sayings and and meditate on one per day through the month of September. Just think through these sayings and how they apply to you, and how they apply to your family, and how they apply to your life, how they apply to your church. Let's just take them one at a time. Now, if I spent two minutes on every saying, do the math that we're looking at an hour, right? So I'm going, to go try to go, I'm going to go fast. I don't plan on spending two minutes on each thing, okay? But then again, I can't make any promises. So let's look at number one. Number one. Starts in chapter 22, verse 22. Here's wisdom saying number one. Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. Statement number one is about the protector of the poor. The protector of the poor. I'm giving you some little statements, little phrases here that help encapsulate what this wisdom saying is about. And saying number one is about the protector of the poor. And according to verse 23, who's the protector of the poor? Say it. Who is it? The Lord. God is the protector of the poor. Now, when you begin to look around at different cultures, different societies... You will find that, that often, particularly in, in third world nations, often the, 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 the rich get richer and the poor get poor. and what happens in those settings is the rich actually begin to take advantage of and oppress the poor and treat them in a more and more cruel fashion. In, in other words, they kick them while they're down. And, and this is an affront to God. God loves all people. God loves rich people. aren't you glad? And God loves poor people, aren't you glad? And God has a heart now listen to this, He has a heart to protect those who can't protect themselves, and so this proverb reminds us this is a serious thing to take advantage of the defenseless it 's a serious thing to take advantage of those who cannot protect themselves. The Lord is the one who will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. In other words, there will be consequences for those who oppress the poor who who hurt the poor, who harm the poor, who kick the poor while they're down, who do not help them, but who harm them. God takes that seriously, and God comes to the rescue of the poor. And those who oppress the poor and, and mistreat the poor will one day pay for it. And, of course, the alternative of, of mistreating the poor is what? What's the, what's the flip side? What's the opposite? If you're not mistreating them, what are you doing? Helping them, right? And Proverbs is full of verses that talk about the importance of helping those who are poor. Jesus said, you'll always have the poor among you. And we are called as believers in Christ to use our resources to help those who cannot help themselves to minister, to bless, to provide for those that are poor. And so just just keep in mind that God takes it seriously when those who are defenseless are harmed by those who are in power. God is the protector of the poor. That's wisdom saying... Number one, was that two minutes? Was that close? Okay, am I? I'm, I'm, okay, all right. Number two is about bad company. Bad company. Look in chapter 22, verse 24. Do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot tempered man. Why? Verse 25, you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself if you spend enough time around somebody doesn't matter how strong you think you are or how good your intentions are if you spend enough time around someone they will eventually rub off on you and influence you the bible says make sure you don't spend time around a hot tempered person because if you do the person is hot tempered given to anger eventually you'll learn to be like them and you'll take every offense too seriously and you will rage when you are mistreated and you will find yourself being controlled by your temper controlled by anger and so be careful of bad company over in first corinthians 15 the bible says that bad company corrupts good morals so again no matter how good your intentions are if you're around bad company enough eventually eventually that bad company will, will influence you in the wrong direction. And the example here is someone that's angry, but it applies to any bad company, any immorality, any wickedness. If you spend enough time around that person, they will affect you. And so you need to, to build boundaries in your life, have accountability in your life, so you're not being dragged down by those who are living with ungodly attitudes and actions. And so why saying number two is about bad company, bad company. Company. Now, let me just give you kind of food for thought to kind of drive this a little closer to home. You may not have any really wicked, hot tempered, immoral friends that you hang around with day by day, but you know, a lot of us hang around with ungodly folks through our television and spend hours doing it. You think that could begin to influence us? If you're constantly being, if you're constantly being. Uh, saturated with ungodly attitudes, ungodly actions, ungodly perspectives, and, and you're hanging around with, with you know, media stars, hanging around with, with television stars and television dramas and television reality shows, eventually it will influence the way you think and the way you act. So we need to be careful of bad company in whatever uh, shape it comes into our lives. The third wise saying Deals with reckless promises. Look in chapter 22, verse 26. It's the third wise saying. Do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors for debts. You have nothing with which to pay. Why should he take your bed from under you? So be, be careful of getting involved in business deals that are unwise. Somebody makes reckless promises to you, and you, and you throw your hat in the ring with them, and you find out that, that they're... Their business plan or their idea was not wise or they are not uh, handling themselves in a wise manner. Before you know it, you, you lose the shirt off your back. He says, why should you take your bed from under you? Because you, you bought into a reckless promise, a reckless deal. You did not approach it with wisdom, with abundance of counselors, and you got yourself into a mess where you need to, to steer clear of, of deals that come that are filled with reckless promises. That's, that's wise saying Number three. Here's why saying number four. And this is interesting. We need to honor the past. Honor the past. Look in chapter 22, verse 28. Do not move the ancient boundary which your fathers have set. Do not move the ancient boundary which your fathers have set. When I studied this, this reminded me of of the old saying that goes like this. You should never take down a fence post until you know why it was put there in the first place. Ever thought about that? That's what, that's what it's saying there. You should just not recklessly tear down an ancient boundary stone without knowing why it was there. It may have a real purpose. I mean, you may be walking in, in the, the back part of your acreage, and there's an old fence there, and you say, you know what? I don't like this fence being here. I'm going to tear it down. You tear on the fence, the next morning there may be cows cow standing in your backyard. That fence was keeping cows out, right? That you didn't know were back there. And we should never dismantle a fence until we know what was there in the first place. And so I believe the application for all of us is this. We should honor the past and not be so quick to, to, to tear down traditions and things from the past that were there for a good reason. Does that, does that make sense? A lot of times in church life, we're so quick to... to Um, to speak against traditions because traditions often hold people back from going in in a a godly direction or a missional direction or doing the right thing and we're so quick to kind of to um, we're so quick to tear down traditions sometimes we can get ourselves into some trouble we should never take down a fence till we find out why it was there in the first place and this is a growing tendency in churches today particularly church planting i'm involved with church planting on several different levels or church plants churches I, I try to stay involved in what's going on in the state and and on the national scale and I try to stay involved with reading and literature and I'm pretty aware of what's going on with church planting and there's a there's a new movement with new churches to say this we don't want to do anything like other churches do it and we're going to tear down all those fences and we're going to do it a new way and really reach people who are impressed that we tore down all the fences and a lot of times, those new pastors have no idea why the fence was even there. For example, I've heard church. Plan- I've been in meetings where church planters said, you know what, proudly, my church doesn't have deacons. We don't have to deal with deacons, you know. I grew up in a church, and the deacons were trouble, and, and, and so we, we, we don't have deacons in my church. We tore down that fence. Well, guess what? That's a biblical fence. Do you know that? The Bible talks about deacons. It's one of the two offices of the church. you got pastor, elder, and deacon. I mean, that, that's what the Bible says. First Timothy 3, Acts chapter 6, Titus chapter 1. It's all over the place. And so you got folks tearing down this fence, not even thinking about the biblical reason the fence is there. And that's dangerous, right? And we could go on and on about it, a whole host of different things. Before we're so quick to tear down fences in church life, we need to understand why they were there in the first place. And make sure we're not doing some, some unwise, foolish things. So that's just a word out there for church planters. Hope that blessed you. Need to honor the past. You, you don't let the past hold you back. Some people can't get past the past. And you don't want the past to hold you back from the new thing that God is doing. But you need to honor the past. And honor what God is doing and what He has done. And, and make sure that you're in line with, uh, with what God wants to do moving forward. Number five, that was more than two minutes. We've got to speed up. I don't think I'm going to make it, so just relax. I'll get you out of here on time, and we'll just pick it up next week, all right? Why saying number five is about skill on display? Look in chapter 22, verse 29. This is a cool verse. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. In other words, someone that is skilled in their work will gain notoriety, For their skill. And so this phrase speaks of skill on display. I believe the implication here for all of us and the application is that one should never be careless about their work. Did you know that God has given you a skill? It's called a spiritual gift. Did you know that? If you're a Christian, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us every single one of us has a spiritual gift. No one in here can say, well, God's never gifted me. Yes, he has. If you're a Christian, he has. And so if we're going to honor him, we want to be diligent in living according to that spiritual gift, in exercising it, in putting it into practice. And if we do that and we do it with with diligence for the glory of God, God can use it to really make an impact. We need to never be careless about our work. We need to seek to be skillful in what God has called us to do. This is true with spiritual gifts. It's true in in your occupation. Your, your calling, your vocation, which the word vocation means calling. Whatever God's put you in, wherever He places you to work and earn a living, you ought to want to do it with skill because you're a Christ follower. And when you do it with skill, you represent Christ well, right? There's just no excuse for a lazy, haphazard Christian. You, you don't find that anywhere in the Bible. Christians should want to do things not for their employer, not to impress their employer. They should want to do things excellently. To, to honor and glorify God. This is over in Ephesians chapter 6. And so, this speaks of skill on display. We ought to be diligent in our work. Number 6, getting into chapter 23, we see the wise saying that teaches us that we, we are not to be lured by wealth. Don't be lured by wealth. Look in chapter 23, verse 1. When you sit down to dine with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are a man of great appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for it is deceptive food. In other words, saying, don't be bought. You have someone trying to impress you, and, and they have an ul- ulterior motive. They're trying to get you to maybe to buy into something that is ungodly. He's saying, don't, don't be bought. Don't be deceived by someone that's trying to impress you with flashy things. Don't be lured by wealth. Just because someone is trying to give you something or or share something with you or impress you with something doesn't mean that what they are doing is good. And we we want to, to avoid being lured by that which is shiny because when we are lured by things that are shiny, it can get us into all kinds of trouble. And so if someone is trying to impress you, someone's trying to impress you, there's probably something ungodly driving that. And you want to steer clear of, of, of falling prey to being impressed by wealth. My, uh, my grandparents had their 50th wedding anniversary. This was years ago. And um, so some extended family members had a, had a special dinner for them. And so we all, we all showed up to the dinner. It was this really fancy central Florida really fancy restaurant. I mean really fancy. And um, and, you know, they brought out different courses and all that. And, and so the, the, the waiter came in and asked if we wanted some wine. And, and one of my extended family members said, yes, we'd, yes, we'd like some wine. And would said, well, do, you, do you want foreign or domestic? And he said, we want something domestic. And, and uh, they brought out and let, let, let the people taste the wine. And, and uh, then they, you know, brought it. You know, it was real, real fancy. And so I had a chance my dad and I slipped out and we had to go to the restroom. We walked in the restroom, looked at each other, and started laughing. Because it was so pretentious, it was so ridiculous and it was so, to me, unimpressive. Uh, it, it had the reverse effect of what they were trying to accomplish in that setting. And so this is being taped. Let's don't put this on the web. But in case my family listens to it. But but we need to be careful about being lured by wealth. Being lured by wealth. Number seven. And this ties into the same idea. Wealth is elusive. Look in chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. This is why saying number seven. It says... I'm sorry, verse 4. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward heavens. So what he's saying is if you spend all your time on wealth, understand that when you get what you want, it can just fly away at any moment. And we're not guaranteed anything in this life, are we? And it's so sad to see people give their whole lives to wealth and when the wealth goes away, they are left with nothing. They're left with No purpose, no meaning, no joy because all of their life is built upon on stuff, on the acquiring of wealth. And so the writer of Proverbs here is saying don't be lured by wealth. It's elusive. It will be there one day and fly away the next. And even if it's there at the end of your life, you're not taking it with you into eternity. Are you? You've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse, have you? And so why spend your entire life passionately chasing something that's not going to be there in eternity. It's not going to matter in eternity. Why not lay up have treasures here that are going to be there for you in heaven by serving the Lord? So don't be lured by wealth. Wealth is elusive. Here's number 8, chapter 23, 6 through 8. This phrase, this, this, these verses speak of dealing with the stingy. Look in verse 6. Do not eat the bread of a selfish man, or desire his delicacies, for as he thinks within himself, so he is, he says, you eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsel you have eaten and waste your compliments. And so, if you ever find yourself around a selfish person? Which is the opposite of Christ-likeness, Christ gave. But people that are selfish are not Christ-like. If you find yourself around a selfish person, understand that, that if, you, if you partake of their stuff, then they're going to resent you. speaks of dealing with the stingy. Don't take things from stingy people. It will end up biting you. And making you miserable. Number 9. Why saying number 9? This speaks of wisdom wasted on a fool. Look in chapter 23 verse 9. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool. For he will despise the wisdom of your words. So saying there. if You're dealing with someone that's a fool. And you're trying to. If you're trying to just fill them with wisdom. That they don't want to hear. You're wasting your breath. Now, Jesus says something like this over in Matthew chapter 7. Remember Matthew chapter 7? Jesus said, uh, judge not lest you be judged. Remember that, that phrase? One of the most misused verses in the Bible. And it says there that before you take the speck out of someone's eye, you should remove the log out of your eye, right? Now, that verse doesn't say we should never remove each other's specks. It just says we should, we should attempt to do that without hypocrisy. If you have a speck and I have a log, then you're not going to hear me out because I'm a hypocrite, right? But if I'm trying to live for the Lord and I'm trying to honor him in my life, and I do notice a speck in your eye, I'm sorry to point you, Brother Gerald. uh, I see a speck in Brother Gerald's eye. Then I I can, with love, go and address that because it's best for his eyes, best for his life. So saying, don't be hypocritical. Deal with your own stuff first. But then, when you've dealt with your own stuff, then go to your brother or sister and lovingly confront them so they can deal with the, the speck in their eye. That's what that verse means. It doesn't mean we shouldn't speak truth to one another. You know, we get into society now and you say, well, you know, your lifestyle is wrong. Don't judge me. Jesus said, don't judge me. No, he didn't. He said, before you deal with the speck, deal with your own log. That's what he said. And once you deal with your log, then you can deal with other people's speck. God expects us, to speak truth in each other's lives. Galatians 6 says, restore each other with a spirit of gentleness. How do you restore unless you confront people on issues in their life, right? I don't know how I got off on that. Matthew 7. So, at the end of that passage, he talks about judgment. Jesus says, a very interesting phrase, he says, don't cast your pearls before what? Before, you've heard that verse. Now, what in the world does that mean? Don't cast your pearls, and there's all kinds of crazy Interpretation concerning what it means when Jesus said don't cast your pearls before swine Here's what I believe he means I believe he's saying in that context Don't approach a lost person With a non-redemptive message If someone's lost they're going to act like a lost person right What does a lost person need? They don't need moral reformation They need salvation right their sins to be forgiven and their inner nature to be changed by the spirit of god so they can change the trajectory of their life that's what they need they need inner transformation and forgiveness of their sins but what we often try to do is we try to fix lost people and we approach them with non-redemptive messages you know you really ought to stop doing this and you really ought to stop doing that and you know this that, and, and really we're not dealing with the main issue and a lot of times lost people will turn on you when you try to fix their life. Because they don't want to hear it. They're lost. The message they need to hear from you and hear from me is the message of the gospel, the good news. We should not try to fix up lost people's lives to make them look better and then send them to hell in that condition. Right? That's, that's whitewashing a dirty fence. When someone is lost, they need the gospel. They need the good news that Jesus died for them. That Jesus rose from the dead. And if they'll place their faith in Jesus, He'll forgive them of all their sins. He'll change their life. He'll he'll make them want to go in a new direction. See, when they're lost, they don't want to go in a new direction. But when Jesus gets in them, their want-tos will change. You know, one of the reasons I know I'm a Christian? Because my want-tos have changed. My want to's have changed. And if you're a believer, yours have too. You don't want to do the things you used to want to do, and you want to do some things you used to not want to do. Why? The Spirit of God is working in your life. And so, Jesus, don't cast pearls before swine. Don't approach a lost person with a non redemptive message. I think the same thing's happening here. All right? Someone is, is lost and a fool and, and has turned their back to God and stiff armed God. Don't approach them about Sunday school attendance. right or you know they're listening to some song on the radio you shouldn't listen to that song no them about jesus they're just acting like a person that's stiff-armed god right and so we've got to be careful about our messages of wisdom that are intended for those that are trying to walk with god and we give that message to a person that doesn't care and when we do that 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 person will turn jesus says in matthew 7 the, the the wild hog will turn and tear you to pieces. So be very careful about trying to approach a person that is lost, ungodly, a fool, the Bible calls him, with a message that is not the gospel. Because it's not helping them and it's not going to help you. It's just going to make all of you miserable. Can I get an amen? Next. Number 10. We see here the champion of the fatherless. Earlier, God is mentioned as the protector of the poor, but here He's the champion of the fatherless. Look in chapter 23, verses 10 and 11. Do not move the ancient boundary, same thought there, or go into the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is what? Strong. He will plead their case against you. So who is the one that comes to defend the fatherless the orphan who god and god is i believe angered when people mistreat and harm the fathers they mistreat and harm orphans and don't help them but oppress them and and mistreat them that makes god furious he is a champion of the fatherless and one day those that, that abuse the fatherless will one day answer before a holy God for those actions. God himself will bring them to trial. what this verse says. And so what's the, opposite of, what's the opposite of mistreating the fatherless? What's the opposite? Helping them. What did James say? He said, true religion, James 1.27, true religion, if you know you're really the real deal, is when you minister to widows and orphans. The Bible says... If your heart's not moved by someone that doesn't have a father, fatherless, then then I just wonder, does the Lord have your heart? And so God is the champion of the fatherless. He's a father to the fatherless. And that's good news for them. Number 11, listen up. Look in chapter 23, verse 12. Aren't you glad for your Bible, by the way? We could be reading the 30 sayings of a tonight. But we got our Bibles. Amen? Chapter 23, verse 12. Saying number 11. Apply your heart to discipline and your ears to words of knowledge. Now, this is a consistent theme through Proverbs, that God gives us this wisdom. He gives us this insight into life that we should acquire and apply. Our job is to listen up, to hear Him out, to to, uh, uh, apply our heart to Him, to to turn our ear, to hear what he has to say. We are to be teachable. We are to listen up to the wisdom of God. Now here's the application of that for your life. The wisdom of God is contained in this book we call the Bible. And how can you listen up when you're not reading it? Simple application, right? Are you reading your Bible? I can't think of one issue that you'll ever come to me as a pastor where you need counsel that part of my advice will not be, you need to read your Bible. If You come to me with marriage issues, we're going to talk about reading the Bible. You come to me with depression or anxiety, we're going to talk about reading the Bible. You come to me with relational issues, we're going to talk about reading the Bible. Parenting issues, we're going to talk about what the Bible says. It, It all goes back to the Word of God, does it not? I mean, it all does. And, and, and we know this, and yet we're, we, we, we find ourselves, as, as American Christians, really biblically illiterate. And it's sad. Because we're missing out on so much wisdom. So read your Bible. Let me tell you, the last couple of years, a thing that has helped me more than anything else I've ever encountered, spiritually speaking, that is a Bible reading plan to discipline myself to read through the entire Bible every year. I'm telling you, it has, it has literally changed your pastor's life doing that. It really has. I, every year, I'm exposing myself to the whole counsel of God. Now, before that, I read the Bible. But I kind of read through passages slower, and I'd kind of go back and forth, Old Testament, New Testament, and kind of maybe read passages that I was more interested in. And, but now, I'm holding myself accountable to read everything in the Bible every year. So every year, I'm exposing myself to the entire counsel of God, and it has reaped great dividends in my life. It really has. It's, it's grown me as a believer in Christ. And so, we need to read our Bibles. We need to listen up to the wisdom of God. Number 12. We see here the necessity of discipline. Look what it says in chapter 23, verse 13. 23, 13. Do not hold back discipline from, your, from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from shale. In other words... When you discipline him to let him understand the error of his ways, it will save him from making bad decisions that will eventually end in his destruction. is the place of death. My son, if your heart is wise, my own heart also will be glad. So he speaks here of discipline. You shall strike him with a rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. Now, I just don't know any other way to look at that verse other than seeing it speaks of corporal punishment. I don't know any other way to interpret it. I'm not smart enough to come up with some other interpretation. Okay, it speaks of corporal punishment, and of course, you don't want to harm your child or hurt your child, but you want to you want them to feel the the consequences for disobedience, for, for rebellious actions. You want them to to feel the the sting, if you will, for that. And so, you you when we practice corporal punishment, you do it in a controlled manner. If you need to count to one hundred or two hundred or whatever, you count. You, 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 you control, you're able to talk to them rationally about what they did and why they did it and why they're getting punished. And you, you, you administer corporal punishment in a way that is, that, is, that is fair and not harmful or hurtful or doesn't leave marks, but, but they feel it. And they remember it. And they know the consequences for their behavior. They know what those consequences look like. And so we, as parents, need to learn this aspect of corporal punishment, discipline to, to get their attention, Another place in Proverbs says that that the father that does not discipline his child hates his son. Pretty strong language, isn't it? Because you really don't want what's best for your child. And so one of the the 30 statements of wisdom for Christians, for for people that honor God, people that want to live for the Lord, people that want to live wise lives, is to discipline their children. Do not hold back discipline. From the child, even though you strike him, even though it's no fun, uh, he will not die. Now I never understood this—you know, the the whole idea of parents saying this hurts me more than it hurts you. You You—you heard all that. My dad spanked me. I thought there's no way this hurts dad more than it hurts me. But now I understand as a parent, I really do. I'll just be honest with you and transparent with you as as your pastor. You okay with some transparency tonight? I hate spanking my kids. I hate it. I mean, when I know it's got to happen, I dread it. it. Makes my heart sink. I don't like it at all. If it wasn't for the Bible. I would, be, I would be way too lenient, I think. The Bible serves as kind of a guardrail for me to understand what I need to do as a, as a parent. And I, I, don't, I don't like spanking my kids. I don't. And I don't understand why says they like spanking their kids. It's, 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 not a, it's not a fun thing to do, but it's a necessary thing to do to get their attention. They understand they're putting together in their little minds that there are consequences for disobedience. There are consequences for rebellion. There are consequences for not listening. And we need to be diligent in that. And by the way, discipline should always flow from relationship. Let me give you a little phrase. Write this down in your notes. Rules without relationship equals rebellion. If your house is all about rules and there's no loving relationship there, you can can bet they're probably going to rebel against those rules one day and rebel against you because there's no relationship there with And so we want to always work in our relationship with our children and discipline them from that love relationship. That's an entirely different sermon we're studying. We'll get some more of that in our what we roll out on September 15th. Be here for that. Can't wait to share that with you on that Sunday. Now, here's the flip side of discipline. When you have wise children, it's good. There there is joy in wise children. Look in chapter 23, verse 15. This is saying number 13. Do not hold back discipline from the child, although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol, my son. Now he's talking to his son. If your heart is wise, my own heart also will be glad. My inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak what is right. And so we're to we're to raise our children in the right way. And when our children make their own decisions and follow the Lord and live wise lives, lives there's a joy that we have in that. There's a joy in seeing Your children make the right decisions. Uh, Paul said it like this. He was speaking, I think, in spiritual terms, in terms of people he'd led to Christ. But he said, he said, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. There's joy in that. So that should be our goal, our aim as parents, as we launch them out into the world to get them to that point. Number 14, don't envy sinners, fear the Lord. Don't envy sinners, fear the Lord. Look what it says in chapter 23, verse 17. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. I don't know what it is about us that envies the wicked. But we all do. We all do. Over in Psalm 73, I think I've shared this with you before. Psalm 73, the psalmist is looking around at his life. He says, I see some folks over there, and they are wicked and ungodly, and their life looks perfect. They're blessed, they're living it up, they have everything they need. They're enjoying life, they're having fun. I'm here trying to serve the Lord, live a godly life, but my life is falling apart. So how do you explain that? I mean, a godly guy, life falling apart, ungodly guy, he seems like he has it all. Well, in Psalm 73, the psalmist says, I went to the temple to worship, and he said, I saw their end. In other words, he said, God allowed me to see how it all ends up for the wicked, and it is not pretty, right? So why would I envy those that are headed for destruction? So he said, I looked at it from an eternal perspective. We should learn not to envy sinners, but to fear the Lord. Let me just talk about Miley Cyrus for a minute. Um, man, where would I start? I didn't watch the show. Um, I haven't watched it, I don't think, ever. Uh, usually not a good idea. They're always trying to outdo themselves with shock value, trying to shock people with what's going on. Of course, you know, Miley Cyrus used to be, the famous show on Disney Channel, was Hannah Montana. And I, I remember just, I remember probably four years ago, maybe, uh, at our fall festival, we had a bunch of little girls running around in Hannah Montana costumes. It was kind of the, the going thing at that time and now she's on the video, video music awards and being lewd and ungodly and 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 just gross and uh, it was just it was just heartening to, disheartening to hear and, and to, to, to hear how far down the wrong road she has gone i can't imagine what her parents are saying i didn't have heard them say a word if it was my daughter the, the, I, that ha- they'd have to fight they'd have to they'd have to pull me off the stage cuz i'd be going up there to pull her off the stage i mean the, i just can't imagine a mom and dad letting it get to that point, but that's an entirely different sermon. But but here's the deal. Uh, we got to be careful who we envy. And, you know, back when the whole Hannah Montana thing was going on, uh, and I don't want to speak, I don't want to sound, sound uh, you know, morally superior, or anything like that, but I had a check in my spirit. I really did. And I thought, man, I, I, I've seen how these little teen, teenage girls turn out. It's not, there's not a good track record for the Britney Spears, you know, she was a Mouseketeer, and there's just not a good, a good track record. And so, so, okay, they like Hannah Montana, they're dressing like her, but, I, man, if she goes down the wrong road, that could do a lot of damage. And I just had a kind of a check in my spirit that, man, maybe she's not a, no, maybe she's not a great role model. Even when she was just doing, you know, Hannah Montana stuff, I don't even really know what that was, but Hannah, she was singing and you know, dancing. Even if she, maybe she wasn't a great role model. And so, so we've got to be careful to teach our kids to find good role models. So, okay, uh, who's a good role model? My wife's teaching our our preschoolers, our four-year-olds this tonight, about Lottie Moon. You know who Lottie Moon was? She was a little four-foot lady in the 1800s who was single. She didn't get married. She had a, a man she fell in love with who was a seminary professor, but he went liberal and stopped believing and teaching the Bible, so she didn't marry him because of her stance for the truth. And then she uh, had this heart for the lost in China. I mean, the... The, she called them the, back then they called him the heathen, the people that never heard the gospel. And so she, this little four-foot lady, loads up on a boat and goes to China and, and, and spends her life giving her life away to let those Chinese boys and girls and men and women hear the gospel. And the reason she's so well-known is because she wrote all these letters back to the states and and asking for help she's saying where's everybody at there i mean i'm just surrounded by losses and there's no where are the men where are the men I, we need some men over here to come and preach to god where where's everybody at and these letters are so convicting you can read them online you can write lottie moon on google or in lottie moon letters something like that it should bring them up so convicting and that's why our convention has named an offering after her the lottie moon christmas offering for international mission that's why we make a big deal about it to honor her legacy and people like her she's a hero She's a hero. She, she was known for cookies. She, she made cookies for the children, little tea cookies. and, and that, She was known as the cookie lady. And she had such inroads into Chinese people's lives. She's a hero. Don't envy sinners. Fear the Lord. Find those folks that fear the Lord, that live a God-honoring life, that, that give themselves away for the glory of God and, 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 and follow th- that kind of example. Just a thought. Just a thought. Don't envy sinners. Fear the Lord. We need to help our kids find those good role models. Amen? I can give you some more examples, but we'll, we'll move on. Don't envy sinners. Fear the Lord. Number 15. We see that here a statement about the ruin of excess. The ruin of excess. We're on number 15. Is that right? 23, 19 through 21. Look at chapter 23 with me. Nineteen, Verse 19. Listen, my son... And be wise and direct your heart in the way. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. And so we see here the ruin of excess. And it mentions, we talked about this at length last week, we're going to talk about it some more in a moment, about the, the, the effects of drunkenness, the effects of alcohol and alcohol abuse. And it speaks here again of alcohol, and it speaks of gluttony. It speaks of the person that lives in excess, and because of their excess with alcohol and and food, they've grown into a lazy, drowsy, do-nothing kind of person, and it never ends up good for that kind of person. It says they will come to poverty. Their drowsiness will clothe one with rags, and so we need to be careful of excess, be careful of of involving ourselves in things that will, will ruin our lives, that will drag us down the wrong road, that will lead us to to laziness and drowsiness in our lives. The Bible speaks of that, the ruin of excess. And I, could, I said a lot, if you, if you want to hear more about my alcohol lecture, then you can listen to that last week. Pick it up on the internet and listen to that one, and uh, you'll hear my whole spiel there. Uh, but I talked a little bit about gluttony as, as well last week. We need to be careful of anything that causes addiction in our lives because it can destroy our lives. Here's number 16. This is good by the way, this is not just for children in the home. This is for anyone that has parents. Make your parents proud. Make your parents proud. Look what it says in chapter 23, verse 22. Listen to your father who begot you. And do not despise your mother when she is old. By truth, do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who sires a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and your mother be glad. Let her rejoice who gave birth to you. So our goal should be to make our parents happy, right? That we're living a godly life, a wise life to such a degree that they look and say, wow, man, God is good. The father rejoices in the righteousness of the son. The mother there is so grateful. She rejoices over giving birth to her son or her daughter Our goal in life as godly people, as Christians, should be to make our parents proud. I believe it's part of honoring your father and your mother, one of the the Ten Commandments. You honor them by making them proud with your life. And this is not just for children in the home. If you still got parents, make them proud. Make them proud. If if they're in the nursing home, make them proud with the way you love them and care for them in these days. And make them proud of the way you live your life for the glory of God. Make your parents proud. That should be the goal of all of our lives. I hope that's the goal of your life. I love what he says there in verse uh, verse 22. Listen to your father who begot you. Uh, it seemed like the older I got, you've heard this before, the more I listened to my dad. The more wise I knew he was, the more I knew I needed his wisdom. And I asked him for a lot, a lot more about his wisdom after I was out of college than before I went into college because I knew I needed it. So we need to listen to our parents. Obey our parents, honor our parents, make our parents proud. That's number 16. Number 17, let's do 17 18, and we'll close down. We'll finish up next week. Number 17, watch out for the immoral. Watch out for the immoral. Look in chapter 23, verse 26. Give me your heart, my son. Let your eyes delight in my ways. I love that from a dad. Hey, give me your heart. Give me your heart. For a harlot... The immoral woman is a deep pit, and an adulterous woman is a narrow well. Surely she lurks as a robber and increases the faithless among men. So he's saying there, stay away from the immoral woman. Give me your heart. I'll lead you in the right direction. I won't destroy you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to point you in the right I'm going to encourage you. But if you, if you give your heart to this immoral woman, she will destroy your life. You see, immorality is romanticized in our culture, isn't it? I want to say it again. Immorality is romanticized in our culture. Culture makes immorality look fun, look enticing. It it puts on the appearance, the air of, of, if you do this, that's when you'll really have fun in your life. But in this section, we see the cold, hard facts. Immorality is not fun. Immorality will lead to a deep pit, a narrow well. She lurks as a robber. In other words, she will steal things from your life. Increases the faithless among men. Immorality leads to destruction. It's not a good thing. It's not a fun thing. It leads to destruction. And here a dad is saying to his son, listen, don't get caught up in the romanticization. 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 Don't let culture romanticize immorality. Understand the cold, hard facts. Let's look at number 18 and we'll be through. The folly of drunkenness. I talked about this at length last week, but I want to show you a very striking passage of Scripture. Verse 29, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Answer to the questions. Those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. And at the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see things and your mind will utter perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea. Or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. In other words, it will make you sick. Like seasickness. They struck me. Listen to what the, the drunkard says. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. I was so, I was so inebriated, I didn't know I was getting beat up. is what he's saying. When shall I awake? And then look how it ends. I will seek another drink. This alcohol made me sick. It caused redness in my eyes. I didn't know the bad things that were happening to me. I was so so drunk. I was so inebriated. But now I'm so addicted to it that when I wake up and get my wits about me, I want to find another drink. That is a Striking but realistic picture of alcohol abuse. This is an unforgettable study of the drunkard. As he has seen, verse 29, as as he sees, 33-35, his imagination is, is as uncontrollable as his legs, verse 34. And if there's pathos in his first fascination, verse 31, there is far more in his final bravado. I need more drink. And so we see here the folly of drunkenness. The folly of drunkenness. Drunkenness will destroy alcohol or any substance that that causes addiction will destroy we need to steer far from it it's not a good thing it is a dangerous thing we need to tell our kids it's not a fun thing it's a dangerous thing i remember when cameron first started learning to read he's nine now or ten he's ten now he first started learning to read and i started having to have to have these conversations with him because we'd be driving down the road we'd pass a big truck he'd go but but Bud, but but uh, bud, bud, bud Light, Bud Light, Dad. What's Bud Light, Dad? What is? So we had to a, you know, he's reading the signs on the side of a truck. So we had to have a conversation what Bud Light is, and and uh, you know he'll see a commercial and they're laughing. They're at a bar, but having a good time. It's you know, had to have a conversation about about the reality of this stuff. And again, I told, talked about a lot about this last week, but just know it 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 is not becoming for a believer to get tied up into something that will ruin their life and cause addiction and be a poor witness for a watching world. The folly of drunkenness. It just never turns out good. And so, I said this last week and I'll say it again because I think it's a good comment to make and I hope you'll take this stand with me. If, uh, if, if, your, if your kids, if your grandkids, if they ever decide they want to start drinking, and they want to start abusing alcohol, it will not be because they saw Pastor Wade drinking it. I'm just going to tell you, that's my, that's my pledge to you. It, if, they, if they ever start going down that pathway, they'll never say, well, I saw Pastor Wade drinking. It's not going to happen. By God's grace, that's not going to happen. And I just wonder if, if we have some folks in this room to say, I'll take that stand with you, Wade. I'll, I'll say, I'll, it's not going to be because they see it in my hand, or see me walk out of the store with it. I will take that stand with you. I hope you will. So... We see the folly of drunkenness. Well, those are 18 sayings of the wise. We'll get to 19 through 30. Next week we can go a little bit further. As we have some really good stuff next week, so I hope you'll be here um, for that.